Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, about three weeks ago, we started a campaign called Save Our Statues. We launched a new website called saveourstatues.org.uk. And uh, you might remember that at the time, the statue issue was really at its very height, but it hasn't gone away. In fact, it's bubbling away under the surface all the time with various councils around England talking about revising all their statues and public memorials. Um, we're very pleased to say that since we started that campaign, uh, so many of you have actually got in touch and wanted to help. We've had hundreds of people coming forward as supporters or joining up as members or wanting somehow to uh, find out how they can actually be involved on the ground. So that's very, very encouraging. Uh, statues continue to be in the news. Uh, you might have seen, actually, last week, there was a new one that was unveiled on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. It is called The End. Here's a picture of it. It's like a kind of strange postmodern ice cream. This is right in the middle of London. Uh, somewhat, uh, the very, I think the very most complimentary thing you could say about it is that it's somewhat pretentious. Uh, at the same time, a few days before that, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, uh, put out a press release giving us more details about his so-called Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm. This is going to look at all of London's historical statues, memorials, street names and murals, and to judge whether they are ones that should still be celebrated or not, whether in fact new ones should be commissioned, or indeed old ones got rid of. These are all very important issues which we're going to be discussing today. We're also going to be looking at the Europe-wide situation. Is this just something affecting Britain or Western Europe or is this something further afield? Now, with me to discuss this, I've got uh, five guests today. I'm pleased we're first of all joined from uh, the Czech Republic by Richard Bingley, who is General Secretary of the Save Our Statues campaign. We have Thomas Stranach, who was instrumental in saving the Baden-Powell statue down in Poole in Dorset. Emma Webb, who is from the think tank Civitas. Robert Pohl, who started the Save Our Statues Twitter campaign, which is going great guns at the moment. And the historian and commentator and our resident guest from the New College Forum, Rave Hadelman Koo. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, I want to start actually on the Europe issue, uh, in fact. Um, we, here we are, we hear a lot about uh, the position in America with statues and memorials being attacked and also in this country. But um, you're in the Czech Republic at the moment, Richard. Um, what's the situation like there? Do, are they looking on it and thinking that this is something weird that's happening in Britain? Bluntly, yes. Um, the, the fact uh, over here really is um, that they had quite a small Black Lives Matter protests, but um, there's no great clamour to remove any any sort of historical cultural furniture at all. Um, the big dilemma over in East Europe and Central Europe was obviously about removing communist statues uh, and, and those related to sort of Russia or Soviet Union. Uh, there was a kind of decision 20 years ago to, to not remove them. 
um, they were going to contextualize them. And indeed, in Bud Budapest, Freedom Square there, they still have statues of Russian generals. So over here, there's kind of a, a lot more memorial around Russian generals who helped to fight the cause against Nazism. So what, when you say... Um, we did have a statue over here, Winston Churchill, that was vandalised, was graffitied. But I mean, why would who would be doing the vandalizing there? Would that you said you had they've had Black Lives Matter protests in the Czech Republic? Would that have been them? They've happened in hundreds of cities around the world, and you know that that's here. It was quite a small protest. Um, that's taken within the context of every week over here. You have tens of thousands of protesters coming out against the government at the moment. So there's quite a healthy protest culture, but be under no illusion. If if what if what we were seeing in London was repeated over here in the Czech Republic, the police would move in, do their job, and prosecute people who are violent and people who are destroying our statues. Yes. Yeah. Is this something you have quite a few connections with Poland, don't you, Rafe? And what is the situation like in Poland? Is this is is this sort of thing even having any purchase at all there? No, not at all. For the very simple reason that the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe have lived through a time when institutions were taken over, when their symbols and history were expunged and purged. And the first thing that they did when communism collapsed and fell was to restore their national flags, restore their coats of arms, restore their national honour system, bring back their, their, their prized sacred relics and statues and celebrate their past and their history. So it's actually from a point of privilege in the West that people are talking about, they have the luxury to talk about their oppression, whereas they have no concept of what oppression is really like. And I happen to have been behind the Iron Curtain during the communist times, and I've seen oppression there, you know. I mean, if people are going to be oppressed, my, my great-grandmother was sent to Siberia, my grandfather's brother was murdered by the Russians in the Katyn massacre. Um, those people have been oppressed, and they've seen how that oppressive regime tried very much to expunge the existing culture and supplant it with a new foreign ideology. And um, there are parallels that can be drawn in terms of the way that that, that, that that ideological movement tried to get rid of all of the historical bonds that, you, that tied the people to their national story. And so there's a complete revulsion against that idea uh, happening in civilized societies of Central Europe. And it's something which we here should be alive and alert to too. Because although there are no sinister KGB forces in this country, the effect is the same to try to erase those vital connections that tie people to its sense of identity and purpose and to a sense of national confidence. I mean, that is what's really happening, isn't it, Emma? Uh, the sort of sense in which people are being... The ties which bind, as we would call it, are sort of being cut, aren't they? I mean, this seems to be on purpose. It's interesting, actually, to see, um, the, like you mentioned, the ridiculous statue that's gone up in Trafalgar Square and some of the other statues that have been proposed that all of them are ahistorical. Yes. They they are, you know, round circular blobs to talk about, you know, the uns unspoken history of, of various countries and it does seem to be like it's it's almost a symbol of this um, 
the endless present that we we spoke about in the last episode when we discussed this and um the ground zero that the sort of totalitarian streak that i think a lot of the people i've spoken to friends um who are um from poland or their ancestors or themselves who had experience of living under um totalitarianism this is something that for them resonates deeply because they they know it when they see it but i think for us we lack that um, that kind of context and it's interesting as well um, to look at the um, the divide political divide between those who are supporting it so recently the protest um, outside of the Museum of the Home in London that where uh, they had the socialist worker placards um, and some recent uh, Pew statistics as well um, showed it, it this is the Pew Institute is it? yeah so yes. they they reviewed the social media activity um, throughout the BLM protests after the death of George Floyd. Um, they reviewed sort of the um, politicians' activity on social media um, within the Anglosphere and found that, firstly, the UK was far more active than um, any of the other countries in the Anglosphere. And across the Anglosphere, there was a clear divide between those who were tweeting, criticising um, the protests or criticising the destruction of heritage um, and those who were in support of the protests being a very sort of clear left-right divide. So in some ways it's a bit chicken or egg, you know, are they supporting it because they're left-wing or is there some other reason, some other motive for why they think that, you know, the erasure of history is, is a good thing um, and why they would like to see it replaced with these sorts of timeless idiotic blobs yes. like the one in Trafalgar Square. I've noticed also, for example, that, that sort of what you might call harmless statues are going up. You mentioned blobs, but there's actually rather a lovely one of Gene Kelly uh, singing in the rain. It's gone up in Leicester Square and it's a, very, it's a lovely statue. But that I means it's sort of not going to do any harm to anyone, is it? It's not going to sort of say any, any, anything. Um, Thomas, I, I want to talk to you. You, you obviously, um, you know, you're well, decades younger than I am. And I wondered, what do statues mean to you uh, exactly? Why did you get involved in your particular case? Well, I, I, I think that um, statues aren't just there to glorify people. They're there to remind us that they, were, they, that they existed. So they participated in making our nation what it is today, basically. And so what happened? What did you actually do? It was, uh, you would... It was the Baden-Powell statue, wasn't it? Can you just can you just tell us what happened? What, how did you get involved in that? What did you do? So I heard on the news that the local council were planning to take down the statue of Robert Baden-Powell, who founded the Scout Movement in uh, over a century ago, and it. Because I'm not a scout myself, but I do support the scouting movement, I made a petition to keep it where it was. So I shared that on community groups, on, on Facebook, on Twitter, and it, it took off from there, basically. And so how many signatures did you get in the end? I think it was 40,000, over 40,000 40, 40, signatures in the end. Right. But I mean, d therefore, so did, did, do you think that actually really did help the change the council's mind about this? Um, in the end, they decided that it would be hoarded up and then uh, earlier last month they took away the hoarding and it's now on display again. Right, I see. Um, Robert, you know, you're, you have, uh, you've been doing a lot of petitions, haven't you, organising petitions. Um, and 
Do you think they are effective? I mean, this like, appears to be a case where they've been very effective. Well, we've certainly seen them being used effectively on the other side. Yes. <coughs> um, they've been uh, using them in order to prompt council debates yeah. um, and uh, to publicise their, their efforts to get rid of the statues. They've really taken off online. Um, on our side, it's been a lot harder, really, to get traction, to get numbers, with the one exception, perhaps, of the Baden-Powell that you've mentioned. Um, but they still do have some effect, I'm sure. Uh, we've we've had some success, for instance, um, in Peterborough recently. We we chose to highlight that campaign where they um, had a vote in their council to um, review all their statues and street names. But we uh, we wanted to take a, a more kind of proactive approach to this and uh, actually get in before there and petition the councillors um, specifically on that point to try and um, at least give them some confidence that um, there are a lot of people out there, um, the majority in fact, who, who really don't agree with this attack on our, on our history and heritage and don't want these reviews to take place. Um, there's no large groundswell of public opinion asking for these um, and at the moment, as we said before, councils should really have a lot more better things to do with their time and resources. Um, so, I mean, we think that that petition maybe um, had an impact on some of the councillors. The motion was withdrawn in the end um, for lack of support. But Can I ask, who are the sort of people who put the petitions in to bring statues down? I mean, who, who are they? Are they just like any old body? Who are they? Who are the people who sort of start these things to remove somebody? I think they are generally anybody. Um, a lot, a lot of them have been triggered from uh, there's a there's a website that highlights the statues that are supposedly racist and um, people these can be submitted by anyone and the petition started by anyone. Um, they can also be signed by anyone. There's no real due diligence or or uh, requirements for where you live, for example. Um, they can be signed from anywhere in the world. Um, it, it could just be the same people signing the same petitions over and over again. Um, we've seen cases as well where they, um, the numbers are massaged a bit, where petitions may be two petitions for the same cause, and then there it's reported, they, they add the numbers together and say so many people signed a petition, um, which clearly isn't true because it's probably the same people signing both, um, just being double counted. Mm. Uh, Richard, what, what's your faith in, you know, petitions seem to be a good thing, but I mean, at the same time, you know, the, we've got to arm us. I, I know you've been talking about this a lot with the campaign. We've got to kind of arm ourselves with as much legal knowledge as possible, haven't we? Yes, I mean, just to pick up on Rob's point, the fact is that these petitions are being set up by a lot of former members of the Socialist Workers' Party people that have frankly not been successful even in local politics uh but but we all seem to be dancing to their tune so they do have an amplified effect uh, and in terms of sort of rob's work and, and our work it, it's become a, almost a war of attrition around petitions because if you're not in that space it looks like that they are speaking on behalf of the majority mm. but what we've got to do really is form a big big membership base um, connect all the people that are concerned about their local history and public realm, set up local branches, start running co councils, start launching local petitions, start building new statues, and take the offensive back, really, 
you know, because all the time at the moment, our space, but it's not the law-abiding majority, is just being overwhelmed by a few hard-left online activists. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's frankly yeah. absurd that we find ourselves in this situation where we have to defend our state and history and our state... Uh, Do you think... Some people, might, some people might be saying, well, why are you chaps focusing on statues? Surely there are much bigger and important issues to deal with today. But anybody who thinks that this is going to end with statues is no, deluded. Absolutely. This is merely absolutely. the most visible. And if there's a victory for the other side on the issue of statues, then they'll be encouraged and emboldened mm. beyond belief. So this mm. is really the first front in a, in a long battle, or the most visible front in a long battle, because one has to actually question the motives of those people who are putting out these petitions. Because, Conrad, be honest, nobody is oppressed by a statue commemorating somebody from 200 years ago. The idea is absurd, you know? Yeah, if, yeah. If people in Eastern Europe can, can walk around and see statues of Lenin and others without being oppressed when, they, when those atrocities happened to their, themselves or their parents or grandparents, nobody in this country is oppressed by a statue commemorating somebody who lived 200 years ago. Mm. That's eight generations, your great, great, great. Mm. And forgive me, but the attempt to equate the black experience in this country with the black experience in America is absurd. There was a famous adage in the 1700s in law case, you know, as soon as a slave sets foot upon English soil, he's a free man. There's been no traditional slavery here. All the blacks living in this country arrived here of free choice. And that has to be emphasized. And so you have to ask, what is the motive then if no one's really being oppressed? Mm. And it's a direct assault on British culture, British identity, and the very essence of the British spirit. Because you have to think, mm. who are the people who are being attacked? It's Drake. It's Nelson, yeah, it's yeah, Churchill, yeah, yeah. our greatest symbols of Britishness, the very people who epitomise the British spirit, mavericks, independent, outward-looking, adventurous, swashbuckling mm, buccaneer types. Mm, mm, that's Britishness, mm, and that, that's anathema to everything that, that these people stand for. That's why this campaign is so important, and that's why people need to support it. Uh, I, I, I think beautifully put, Rafe, actually. I mean, you know, Emma, do, would you say that this is, are they the Marxists they claim to be? I mean, frankly, looking at them, it seems to me that they are the very, very best scratch marks. I mean, it's very unsophisticated. Or is it just nihilism? I mean, is it the same thing that we are seeing in Europe with the destruction of churches, which we have not quite seen here on the same, but I know you have certainly um, notified and, and brought attention to it's extraordinary what's happening in France, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think necessarily you have to even separate out the different like the different strands of this you know it's a bit of nihilism it's a bit of Marxism it's just there's a whole zeitgeist behind this that has been building and building and building for decades now and I think everything that Rafe has said is completely true I think that what's happened with the statues is that we that it was basically it whetted their appetite yeah. um, and now what we're seeing um, is oh, I mean, there have been lots of instances where it's like the sins of the father are being visited on the sons and but now it's becoming increasingly you know far removed so um, with there was a, a thing recently about um, Rhodes's uncle and a yes, school yes. Um, changing I think it was their name because it was associated with Rhodes uncle in some way even though he, Rhodes's uncle had died when Rhodes was three or something like they that so it was increasingly far removed and and even in um you you know you have seen, we've seen it with the um national trust in scotland um in liverpool with the appointment of particular people to kind of be like the witch finder general looking to try and find increasingly abstract sins wherever they can find them and it's exactly what rafe is describing that they're it's not um you know it, it's like we're talking about marxism you know it's not 
um, that regimented. It's a sort of visceral attack um, on something very uh, core and central to the country. And I think that's why it, it at least resonates with what's been happening with an growing anti-Christian sentiment and uh, attacks on churches in France. Because I think it's, it's that same sort of visceral sense of um, things that are associated with anything Western being uh, assaulted in some way. Um, and there are plenty of people who have spoken out about this who are people of colour who have been attacked and called horrific racist terms. And it's because the people who are, who are attacking them seem to be sort of identifying something in them that they think is, you know, Western and, and also yeah, yeah, somehow yeah. participating in this. I think um, one activist was recently, um, they had been accused of having temporary white privilege. Um, temporary, temporary white, white privilege. privilege and so I think it's it's you don't have to necessarily separate out the different strands of this it's a kind of long-term zeitgeist that wants to break everything down so that's where the nihilism comes in but it also has this kind of ideological motivation behind it um, and I think we're it's actually probably early doors for even trying to unpick it but you know we've seen with the um, Tate Britain as well with the you know the the, the mural um, in in their restaurant area that they wanted to have removed um, and it's it's like Rafe said it's a very it's famous not, one by Rex Whistler yeah one, and yeah, it's yeah. not it's you know that it's the same with uh, the um, National Trust in Scotland yeah. they identified I think it was a fifth of their properties um, were in some way involved in slavery or colonialization when you look at the list it, it is increasingly abstract and and you think well you know, if there are pieces of art in a collection that were funded with the profits from plantations in Jamaica, um, or indirectly in some instances, one of the monuments to the Jacobites who fell in the um, rebellion is on land that was owned by someone who at some point his family profited from, from slavery, you know. Um, and so you have to ask, well, what's the material consequence of this? Do you, do you hide away the art collections? Do you burn them? What happens to them? Because I think once you concede an inch on it, then it's always going to be asking, well, what next? What next? What next? Until everything in the public space, or even in these cases, things that are held in trust or on private properties, will just be round, spherical, inoffensive yes, blobs. Yes, I, I, <laughs> I tend to agree with you. I think that you know, when it comes to things like plaques, you know, which explain the pros and cons. I, I think to me that is more than just the thin end of the wedge. I think you're giving way too much. I, I, you know, it's, it's apologising in a way, I think. Um, uh, Thomas, I mean, does what we're saying resonate with you at all? I mean, you know, look, you're, you're, near, you know, you, you, you're near to having been at school than maybe we are here, right? But did you, for example, get um, a sense that British history was you were made to feel ashamed of it in some way growing up, would you say? Um, yeah, in instances, I think that we were made to feel ashamed of British history and how we came to be. But I think, I think that um, <laughs> For example, you know, there is this sort of uh, sense of you only ever hear about the bad things in British history and, mm. you know, and, and the good things about good dates in British history are no longer really celebrated. Is that something you recognise? Was that your experience? Um, yeah, in, in a way, it's, it's, I mean, there were, there were good parts and then we, I, I think we were, we were, I was made to 
think about more of the bad parts and the good parts, really, that the whole imperial empire thing was bad because you had the slave trade. And, yeah. Yes. Uh, Richard, this is entirely absent, isn't it, in, say, like places like the Czech Republic? I mean, the idea of kind of cultural self-loathing? Almost entirely. I think what there is over here is a healthy, um, reflective education system that teaches critiquing, it teaches um, deeper understanding of social, political and economic issues. Um, I mean, I've worked in higher education in the UK for the best part of a decade now. And, and one has to say that, it, you know, it's dumbed down. And then the way that politics and, and sociology is taught is, is delivered in an infantile and one dimensional way. And so therefore, it's not surprising that the younger generation wants to knock down monuments of things that they simply don't understand, have never been asked to understand. And just sort of picking up on Emma's point, and she, she's absolutely right. But, but if you look at the history of slavery, it actually contributed so little to the British economy in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. We're looking at something like, at the best case scenario, a plus 3% addition to the revenue of the country. It, it was a major economic inhibitor to industrialization and the rest of it. Now, it, it benefited just a few families. Uh, but, but, you know, we all know that we would dislike those individuals today. But we would not destroy their the statues and the things that sort of reflect how history evolved at that point. You know, if, if you don't like sugar plantations and the history of it, well, should we all ban beer, for example? I mean, this is just going to absurd territory. It's obvious that slavery is, 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 you know, is as old as prostitution and taxes. Really, I mean, it goes back thousands of years. Britain was involved in it in a very short, for a very short period of time. Britain led the whole world against uh, against slavery. I've always thought this new thing, Emancipation Day, should actually be a day to celebrate British achievements. And then Britain Emancipation Day, we just had it, is the day that the British Empire abolished slavery, and it's now becoming more popular. But I think it actually should be a way to actually educate people about the fact that it was Britain and the Empire that led the world, including having the Royal Navy enforce the abolition of the slave trade on the Atlantic Oceans. And people need to be educated about the fact that, you know, slavery continued long after in the Middle East and, and, and elsewhere in the world. You know, there were approximately 12 to 15 slaves who were transported from Africa to the Americas. An equal number were actually held in slavery by other Africans. People don't realize that. You know, when European and American ships were moored off the coast of Africa and never actually made incursions into the country, they were actually purchasing slaves from other Africans who had enslaved other warring tribes. No one seemed to talk about that at all. And of course, all these, all these millions of words and all these people marching on the streets against, you know, against the oppressive British Empire and slavery seem curiously silent about the fact that there are 40 million people living in slavery today in the world, that I think seven in every thousand Africans today are living in, in bonded labour and slavery, and yet where are the great protests around the, 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 the African embassies and, uh, and high commissions about that? There's an eerie silence, and I think that silence is, is a, very loud, a very loud thing in itself. Certainly when, uh, when I hear about decolonizing the curriculum, <coughs> it, it always makes me feel slightly uh, surprised because I mean, I don't, I remember personally being told, not being taught anything in particularly wonderful yes. about the empire. It was, it was always really the other way around or just skipped over. 
um, in to a, to a large degree. But really, I think yeah, this battle for history as well is certainly beyond the schools and education. It's moving into other areas. It's certainly in the museums. Um, it's in the the plaques that you talked about where people are saying that this will be kind of to, to provide a balanced history but of course it doesn't really look like it's going to be anything of the sort it's going to be a total totally one-sided view of history um, the other way um, and um, we see it as well spreading into other areas I think on online in particular with something I've noticed on on Wikipedia um, there was a, there was an example when um, the statue of Baron Holland in Holland Park was vandalized and I looked and within maybe two hours his entry on Wikipedia had been updated with a paragraph all about this graffiti attack um, possibly even by the person who did it we don't know Any, anyone could edit Wikipedia basically it's a, a crowdsourced kind of history but this is it's it's very commonly used now um, for some people it's really their only history um, sometimes it's okay you know it's a starting point that you can then um, back up with further reading and the like but for, for many that's it and um, it's becoming um, that's becoming a new battleground as well to edit those entries and actually um, control how people see our history. Yes. I mean, it's interesting because this thing about decolonizing the curriculum I saw a piece in the Evening Standard last night it was just a small report there's a, a school in London I can't remember the name but I wouldn't say it anyway They've just won an award, an inclusivity award for, they, they have decolonized their curriculum, right? But the point is it's not, I took that to mean quite literally sort of anti-imperial history or whatever. It's not actually, it's basically getting rid of what you might call the canon of Western culture. So out go white authors, in come black authors. I think they're no longer even going to teach the seven wonders of the world, for example. This is presumably because it's too much of a white idea, I don't know. But this is the point, Emma, isn't it? Decolonization is not quite how it sounds, is it? It's, I think actually this, this goes to the heart of the matter. And I, I, I think, I mean, both of you, you know, raised really a really important point, which is it's a question of which stories we're choosing to teach, the, the perspective that we're choosing to look at these um, aspects of history through, because there are many stories you can teach. You know, the story of the, of the, of the white working class is something that, and, and their role in the Industrial Revolution is something that doesn't really get very much attention in the, in the, within the curriculum. But when we talk about decolonizing the curriculum, what it usually seems to boil down to is, again, it's the sort of um, social justice theory categories, the um, LD, LGBTQ, um, gender um, orientation and, you know, however long the list is now. Um, it's, it's, it's less to do with the, the British Empire and more to do with breaking down the traditional categories of education, the traditional categories through which we view history, um, and trying to find things that are problematic within that. Um, and I think it's it's interesting because it is, it's a question of which stories we're choosing to teach. Because if you look at, again, going back to the National Trust in Scotland, um, you know, I think it's great. If you want to, t t to tell those stories about, you know, the connections between particular houses, 
um, and the transatlantic slave trade or the their you know the role of the people who were living in that house at the time within Jamaica one of the houses I think was modeled on a house that was was in um, in the plantation somewhere yeah. you know that's fine to, t to teach that history I think it's a great thing you know teach as much history as you pos possibly can but I think we have to be asking ourselves why is it this history that the focus seems to be on and it seems to be a kind of almost a cultural point now a cultural default that all institutions are, are everywhere are really this is trending now um, and in whilst fo focusing on this we should be asking ourselves well if we're actually going to employ some critical thinking what other stories are we missing here um, because you know as, as Richard mentioned about the the contribution of slavery to the economy you know what was the economy like at the time where are we actually discussing you know because often you hear um, talk about you know the um, the the white working class during this period of time and and the the role of industrialization and oppressing them and you know how how do all these things link together we don't have room to discuss that and i think we need to ask ourselves why these stories and what you know why is it the socialist worker is so keen on it and of course it's the it's the it's the institute of education is the is the um teaching colleges that I've often said are the black heart of this postmodernist attempt to deconstruct Britain and the very nature, nature of Britishness. And so you have to ask, you know, what is, what is a civilization? Civilizations come and go, and what is their legacy? It's their monuments, it's their philosophy, it's their literature and their writings. And any, any civilization and culture that isn't brave enough to stand up and defend those doesn't deserve to exist. And yet what we're seeing here is a completely, complete erosion of our own sense of self-confidence and, and a complete failure to teach the young who will grow up without knowing any of this. And so it's a sort of atrophying civilization that you have as a result of that. And that's their goal. You can win a war and a revolution without flying red flags from the rooftop, simply by undermining from within. And that's what we're seeing now. Do you think, actually, from what you've been doing, Robert, online with uh, Save Our Statues Online, do you think, uh, do you think people kind of get that? Do, do you think they know it's that? Or, I mean, have you been struck by, well, for, presumably you've been struck by people's uh, passion about this? You know, because one's always worried that people are going to be apathetic. That's not what we found with this new websiting campaign but I mean have you been struck by people's I mean you know the sheer the, 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 their, their emotion about this subject yes um, definitely and I think as well like you say they they do know it or they are largely aware of um, to an extent what, what you've just been talking about um, and the, the, the wider um, cultural war that's really behind it I think very much so yes you that's very important though if they are yeah but whether they are representative of the wider population, I don't know. I mean, I think the the followers we have on Twitter are probably on the the active end, edge, I suppose, um, and and perhaps more in tune with well some of the other discussions on social media. So they're they're more alert to to seeing the 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 underlying factors. I think driving it. Yeah, I mean, Richard, you know, we you know, there's been a good, a very good uh, response to the new campaign, hasn't there? Terrific and uh, not surprising for me. Uh, we've had pretty much uh, an even split. If we want to go into identity politics, we've had an even split between male and female. We've had um, people generally around the country uh, feeding into us and subscribing. Uh, what's noticeable is the low amount of interest from within the city of London and sort of the, the, the inner boroughs of London. Um, we've, we've had messages of support from America, 
that say their their history their revolution is almost gone but can they help us and um re really it's been a lot of young people as well you know it's been very very inspiring what what's noticeable about this is is that people are viscerally upset and emotionally damaged i have to say on a personal level i i've never been through anything like this you know where your your culture and your history is just being erased before your eyes and there seems to be nothing you can do and this campaign is about bringing people together to reject that narrative we are the moral majority we are the law-abiding uh, communities and we are going to win this one and if that means standing for council next year or in two years time or running for parliament we will do it and we will do it together you mentioned there about london richard like you know relatively little coming from london uh, that doesn't surprise me at all um you know and I mentioned at the beginning of the programme about Sadiq Khan's particular um, review, which is called the Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm, uh, which is actually wrong even grammatically. A realm is a country, I believe, and you can't be just in a city. Anyway, uh, be that as it may, uh, this is going to revise, you know, as it were, looking all the way through all of London's uh, monuments. Um, and... There's a particular significance here, isn't it? Because the monuments in London as well are national, actually internationally important, aren't they, Rafe? They're national monuments, they're international monuments. Many of them were funded by, by, by privates and, and donations, by public subscription. Um, there are different parts of London that are governed by different rules and laws, I mean, different areas, Westminster Council or local councils, or if it's, if it's a crown, crown Roads. There are a whole bunch of different policies, so how on earth um, you would have an overriding policy on this, I can't see whatsoever. And of course, a lot of it is the fact that, of course, you know, London is the capital of the, of, of the whole country, you know, and lots of things are put in there because it's a national capital rather than just a fiefdom of, of the Labour Party or of, of Sadiq Khan. Uh, and so I'm not sure in, in what his plans to do. And then, of course, if you're going to start this precedent, then who's to say that in 25 years from now, people won't be removing the statues erected in the last five years? You know, and it's a very dangerous road to go down. I'd much rather see Sadiq Khan speak out about modern slavery in Pakistan. You know, this is a man who, who's constantly telling us all that he's a son of a Pakistani bus driver. Not once have I ever heard him condemn the fact that slavery in Pakistan is the worst in the entire planet. And he even went there on an official visit. And not once did he raise the issue of slavery in Pakistan. And yet he's one of the key people calling for a slavery museum in this country and calling for Britain to, to you know, wear sackcloth and, and, uh, for uh, its role in the slave trade. And yet he's completely silent about it when it's happening today. And I would have thought that the lives of people today are a lot more important. Yes. I think the interesting thing about London as well is that the mayor has sort of strange, quite vague areas of power. Um, but he has particular uh, authority over things like Trafalgar Square. You know, hence I started by talking about this big ice cream that's gone up, you know. Uh, or Parliament Square, you know, it, it's not just a council thing, it's a complicated situation in London, isn't it, you know? Yeah, I think, well, certainly like you say, in London in particular, these are national monuments, yeah. but I, I would even stretch that to, to those around the country. I mean, who who is to say who really has a stake in these? Um, it's not just even the local people. Um, and certainly I think people are, are surprised that the councils have so much power. It's not really what they were... A, elected to do, they're elected to run a city or a town, but not really to take these kinds of decisions. 
And um, as well, it's quite clear that the councils don't want to ask the people sometimes, you know, if, if you were to put these questions to a, a public vote, whether that's locally or nationally, um, I think it's quite clear the way it would go from every time people are asked, they, they generally say they want to keep them. So, um, yeah, it seems to be a, a an unusual situation where the councils or other institutions as well that have, have um, a stakeholder um, in this have, have this power. Well, look, I mean, I think that we really should uh, draw real encouragement and comfort from the response to very, you know, this campaign into into what you've done, Rob, on Twitter, and you know, indeed, uh, generally to the, the you know the extent of feeling that you get from people around the country, and uh, I just think it, you know, we've got to sort of make sure that we are equipped with the right knowledge, you know, to to actually oppose what's going on, you know. And I think that's that's what it's about. Um, to that end, uh, please do, won't you, subscribe or join saveourstatues.org.uk you can become a, a member too um, and indeed if you get involved and you can tell us about your local situation and indeed you know we can help you as much as we possibly can and build a real network um, in the meantime thank you to Rafe to Emma to Richard to Thomas and to Robert um, and we will be giving you updates on the campaign as it goes along over the coming months. So do join. See you soon. Thank you. Bye.